The future is a hefty responsibility and not one that we take lightly. But then taking things lightly has never been what hefty is about. That's why we've created the Hefty Renew program that turns hard to recycle plastics into valuable resources like park benches and building materials. To participate, simply fill up an orange Hefty Renew bag with accepted items, tie it up, and drop it in with your regular recycling. That's it. It's that easy. It's time to rethink recycling with Renew. Particular valued resources may vary by geography. More info available at heftyrenew.com. This is Will Leach, author of Marketing to Mind States, The Practical Guide to Applying Behavioral Design to Research and Marketing, and you are listening to the Marketing Book Podcast. Welcome to the Marketing Book Podcast, helping you keep up with the smartest thinking in the quickly changing field of modern marketing. And now, here's your host, Douglas Burdett. Hello, thanks for joining me on the Marketing Book Podcast, where each week I publish an interview with the author of a new marketing or sales book, and which was named by LinkedIn as one of 10 podcasts that will make you a better marketer. My goal for this podcast is to help you discover new ideas in order to succeed in the quickly changing field of modern marketing and sales. Don't worry about taking notes. You can find links to everything linkable in this episode's show notes at marketingbookpodcast.com. And since you're a listener to the Marketing Book Podcast, if I can recommend a specific marketing or sales book or some other helpful resource that I know of for whatever situation you find yourself in, feel free to connect with me on LinkedIn where we can chat and I'll try to point you in the right direction. This show is produced by my marketing firm. We work with manufacturers to help them grow. If you're a manufacturer and are serious about growing your business, check out our guide to lead generation for manufacturers on our website, salesartillery.com, or Google lead generation for manufacturers, and you'll find the guide at the top of the organic results. And special thanks to this episode's sponsor, Blinkist. Blinkist is a really cool app that takes the key key insights from the best nonfiction books and distills them into a format that you can read or listen to in just 15 minutes on your smartphone. Several of the books featured on the Marketing Book Podcast are on Blinkist. Right now, Blinkist has a special offer for Marketing Book Podcast listeners where you can sign up for free at Blinkist.com slash Marketing Book Podcast. Blinkist is spelled B-L-I-N-K-I-S-T. And if you opt for the paid version, you'll get an additional 20% off, but only if you go to Blinkist.com slash Marketing Book Podcast or just click on the link at MarketingBookPodcast.com. And now, on with the show. Today, we welcome Will Leach to the Marketing Book Podcast to talk about his book, Marketing to Mind States, The Practical Guide to Applying Behavior Design to Research and Marketing, published by Lioncrest. Will Leach is the founder of TriggerPoint, a behavioral research and design consultancy specializing in identifying and influencing the key factors surrounding consumer decision-making. Will has over 20 years of client-side consumer insights experience in biotechnology, consumer packaged goods, and energy industries, and is a behavioral design instructor at the Cox School of Business at Southern Methodist University in Dallas, Texas. And interesting fact, Will is a United States Army veteran and was awarded the Army Commendation Medal. hoo Will, <laughs> congratulations on Marketing to Mind States, and welcome to the Marketing Book Podcast. Well, Douglas, thank you for having me. I've been uh, looking forward to this one, and uh, thanks for the shout-out for, for the veterans out there. It's uh, it's an important recognition, so I appreciate it. Yeah, here, 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 here. And as a military veteran myself, uh, when I start talking to someone like yourself who uh, 
was in the army. Please forgive me, and and same goes for you, dear listener. If I start uh, lapsing into military lingo and jargon, you know, po- the point is that Will and I understand one another, so just just kind of go with it. In fact, Will, what what I may do is, as I ask every question of you, <laughs> I will conclude it with over. <laughs> Roger that. Roger that. Outstanding. Oh man. Yes. Yes. This is great. <laughs> yes. This is going to be just fine. So. Will, your book dedication, I loved it. It was very different from uh, many, many books that I, from many dedications that I see. And yours says, for those who don't want to earn a PhD in psychology while reading, this book is for you. And you go on to say, from page 17, to make everything in this book actionable and empowering for you, I've purposely gotten rid of the intimidating jargon and details focused only on the big, important stuff. The behavioral scientist in me cringes at this decision, but the marketer and entrepreneur part of me knows this is what you actually want and what the broader marketing industry needs. At its core, this book is about one thing, understanding and activating the temporary non-conscious mind states that heavily influence consumers' decisions in their moment of decision-making. And just prior to that, there were four very important questions that just, uh, I think, bear repeating. One is, why do we act contrary to plans or against logic in general? Why do we buy things and services that we know we don't need? Why do we make the same bad choices again and again, even when we know we'll feel worse in the long run? And most importantly for you, how can marketers tap into this behavioral phenomenon to delivering messaging and experiences that consumers truly want? In the book, you talk about when it comes to buying decisions, most consumers are simply not thinking at all. What are you talking about? Yeah, you know, it started off actually with a stat a couple of years ago that I saw. And I teach this to my students all the time. And, and here's one um, that always stood out to me. It's that on the average day, you are making 35,000 decisions on any given day, like 35,000. The vast majority of those have to be at the non-conscious level, Douglas, because you couldn't possibly do cost-benefit analysis and think through all of those different decisions. So once you wrap your head around this idea that the vast majority of our experience is based upon our habits, our rituals, subconscious factors, and and different types of frames that influence us, you start realizing the importance of understanding all these other factors. And there's that classic quote from Harvard that it says, you know, that 95% of all decisions are made at the non-conscious level. It's all in this space that if you realize that so many of these decisions that you're making, whether you're going to buy this product or not, whether you're going to engage in this website or not, were being driven by the subconscious, you sure as heck better be understanding of those subconscious factors. And chapter one, you asked one of life's eternal questions. And no, I'm not talking about what do women want? The title of chapter one was, Why Do We Behave the Way We Do? And I'd like you to talk about what the heck VUCA is, V-U-C-A. 
So that term um, was brought to me uh, by a company called the Institute for the Future. Um, so I was at PepsiCo at the time, and the Institute for the Future is exactly what you would expect it to be. It's a think tank. Of course, it's in the beautiful San Francisco Valley. And this was way back in probably 2009, where, I mean, this is pre-automation, pre-artificial intelligence, and all of these different factors now that are kind of influencing our days. And there's this idea that, um, even back then, that these futurists, they saw a world that's changing dramatically, that it's volatile, that it's uncertain, that it's chaotic, and that all these different factors, because of globalization and social media and new technology, that was going to impact so much of our lives, particularly as marketers. And what it was funny, so I'm at this conference and what was so interesting about this whole dynamic around VUCA, it's a VUCA world, that the brand managers there were thinking about how technology will enable them to get their brands out there, their brand message out to more and more people when, when it's most appropriate to reach them. In my head, so I'm sitting there as an insights guy doing marketing research for PepsiCo, and I'm thinking to myself, oh my God, we already live in a world that's so complex that we have too much bad marketing, too many people are being uh, email blasted. And I thought to myself, this is the exact opposite of what good marketing is going to be because in this VUCA world, our attention span is going to even be worse because anybody can be a marketer under those circumstances. Right. And just so the listener can, uh, for those playing at home, VUCA stands for Volatile, Uncertain, Complex, and Ambiguous, mm-hmm. which I think uh, just about every listener is going to relate to. You mentioned, you quote the keynoter who said, as marketers, we have to understand how to hack the most advanced filtering system ever created, the human mind. Because of the impending marketing onslaught, People will psychologically filter out the vast majority of advertising. Technology could help you get through these ever-evolving filters, but it's clear now that it will be challenging. And you go on to talk about, like, there's two harsh truths. There is a lot of non-conscious noise in consumers' minds, and, spoiler alert, it's only going to get harder (laughs) (laughs) to break through that noise. Explain what you mean when you say that the fundamentals of marketing and research are broken. So what marketing, you know, and certainly I would say marketing research has been kind of built upon this idea that we do make cost-benefit analyses. Now, let me say traditional marketing. I think marketing is getting a little bit better as it relates to emotional marketing, but I think what I try to come across in my book is that there's science behind emotional marketing. But Think back in the 70s and the 60s, and certainly with research starting maybe in 1920, we assumed that the human mind was just this kind of uh, beautiful well is the way I talk about it in the book. Mm -hmm. And all we do is ask people, what do you want? And then if I know what you want, I'll go create a message that tells you this is what you want. This is why my brand can meet that. Mm -hmm. And so why I think that's wrong is that remember we just said that the vast majority of people don't make conscious, rational decisions when they are making so many of their decisions. They're making emotional decisions. They're being influenced by the way the words and the copy are on the piece of paper. They're being influenced by the frame that somebody takes in that. So the idea here is that traditional marketing research has been built on this idea that we know what we want. And therefore, since we know what we want, I can articulate that well to you. And then if you play that back to me, you're going to drive a business. But there's so much research now, particularly in the last decade to 15 years, that suggests that 
we don't really know what we want. We're not always aware of why we do the things that we do. And so by repeating back what you may have heard of in a focus group or taking the functional benefits that I told you I want, less time, less money, whatever, and replaying those to me, that's a step into a decision, but it's not even close to being the most important parts of a decision. And is it 90, 99% of the, the mind is operating on a subconscious basis? Yeah, I've heard it. It's been, I've heard ninety five. I've heard ninety nine. I don't think it's it's really easy to measure. I can tell you that the vast, vast, vast majority of your decisions never come to conscious awareness. You are just reacting to the environment. So it's important to understand that environment. Whether you are designing a website, whether you're building out packaging or a thirty second spot or whatever, understanding that you control the context or the environment and and how the human mind will re- be received or will receive that information is so critical. And it brings to mind Antonio Damasio, who I think you quoted in the book. Uh, I learned this a while back that he said, we are not thinking machines that feel, we're feeling machines that think. And the more I read about newfound science in about the brain in books like yours and some of the others, boy, does that, does that ring true. So I want to ask you to explain, to set the stage here, the system one and system two parts of our brains, really fundamental to what we were just talking about as well as what we're going to talk about. It is. And um, so think of it this way. You and all of your listeners have two parts of your brain and think of them as system one and system two. And so Daniel Kahneman, Nobel Prize winning psychologist, has been working in this space for 30 or 40 years. And he defined system one or all those decisions that you make when you're kind of non-conscious whether, um, and you're emotionally driven. So think of those things that are kind of happening behind the surface of consciousness that are actually influencing so much of your behaviors. That's system one. So system one is kind of the base of almost every decision you make. Then you have system two. System two decisions are those those decisions that are influenced by more rational thinking. You're more deliberate in that in that mind state. You're thinking a little bit harder. So what's interesting about system one and system two is, yes, yeah, some people say it's right brain or left brain. Okay. Some people, it's, it's conscious versus subconscious. That's okay, but that's not really the biggest part of what Kahneman was coming up, up with when he came up with system one and system two thinking. What he was really talking about was the power of system one, your non-conscious, and how much that influences your conscious reality. So it's not a 50-50 split, Douglas. It's not even close to a 50-50 split. There are times when you're more focused and you're in system two deliberative thought. And those are the types of decisions when you're going to make, um, maybe you know you have a half hour to come up with a really complex problem or the solution to a complex problem, very system two. But you don't really do that nearly as often as you think you do. That's that system one where things are just kind of automatic. They feel intuitive, et cetera. So again, if you understand system one, non-conscious, which traditional marketing and traditional research has not been able to crack the code, but thank gosh for great technology and great thinking in the last 15 years, you were only speaking to those system two rational decisions. And so now we're able to do both, but it's important to understand out of your category, how much of those decisions are being made at system one non-conscious and how much of it is being made at the system two conscious. Right. So please tell the story about how when you were at Pepsi, the Sunships brand had a very well-intentioned, uh, logical uh, approach where they were trying to get system two to override system one, which won't work, right? That's right. Uh, very rarely will it work. So it's a classic mistake in trying to 
play back and build something that the conscious mind wants without taking into consideration the subconscious or the non-conscious system one. So here's what it was. We, uh, back probably in 2010, Sunships was, we needed more growth, just like any other major brand. So what did we do? We wanted to get into the environmental space with the Sunships brand. It makes sense because that brand is built upon, I mean, even in the, in the heritage of the name Sunships, there's just environmentalism there. So we went off and we did a lot of research with our consumers and found out that they are heavily excited about environmental issues. Like that makes sense. This is great. So we wanted to take Sunships and make it the environmental brand to spearhead uh, other brands coming up through the PepsiCo uh, uh, chain. So we went off and worked tirelessly to build out a biodegradable bag because people talk about, you know, especially Sunships lovers, they're like, you know what? The great thing about Sunships, they're healthy. We know that they taste great, but we have this bag and this bag is just horrible. We put it into landfills and it may take a thousand years to uh, to kind of go back into the soil and, and decompose. So here's what we said. We said, we're going to create a biodegradable bag or a compostable bag, really. So we went out and spent tons of time, like years of time in product development and also a massive marketing campaign. We finally got to a bag that was compostable. So we go to uh, you know launch this. We had already posted on uh, on a lot of our social channels um, and also on American Idol. So we actually advertised on American Idol that we are going to convert all of our bags to compostable bags. We're going to save the planet, join the cause. So we are already on the on the uh, on the commercial, and then R and D comes to us and says we have the bag, and um, it's actually here. It's no longer a prototype. This is the actual film, and I'm not kidding you, Douglas. When you touched the bag, it had a loud, very loud crackling sound. I mean, it sounded almost like breaking of glass. <laughs> I've never had anything like it. So I remember getting this call from the brand manager. And she says, Will, you got to come see this bag. I think this is a major issue. And when you get a call like that, especially from such a massive relaunch of a brand, I mean, we were going to the environmental space. And this is a snack, right? So it's really hard to, to own environmentalism as it relates to snacks. I thought she was overreacting. So I go down the hall and I touch this bag. And I remember viscerally pulling my arm back. I wish you could see my arm. Pulling it back because I thought, oh my gosh, this bag just scared me. When I touched the bag, a loud pop hit. And so I thought to myself, we're in a lot of trouble. So as a story goes, I basically took a couple of prototypes bags and I went to a local Kroger here in Dallas, Texas, and I dropped it into the set where other Sunships bags were. And I pulled some of the Sunships bags and I remember sitting in the aisle acting like I was shopping just to see how people would react. And I'll never forget it when the shopper comes over and she grabs the bag and she pulls her hand away and she moves that bag away. And then she pulls a bag behind it. And I thought to myself, whenever you scare people with your brand, you are in a bad, bad place. And so that's a classic example of how basically System 2 said, go make a compostable bag. But what we found later on when we did research around, okay, how big a deal is this going to be? When I see somebody flinch when they touch your bag, I think that's a big deal. Maybe other people didn't. So we went off and did really quick testing on this bag and found out that actually – one of the key things that people do with snacking is they actually try to hide snacking. There's a lot of midnight crunchers like me who once his wife goes to bed, I go and grab snacks. Or maybe if I'm sitting at my at my desk, I pull out my drawer and I eat. And you don't want people to know all the times that you're snacking, right? There's sometimes a feeling of, of self um, 
oh, I don't know, a, f- a feeling that maybe I'm not taking care of myself, a little bit of embarrassment. So what we found is that even though people said they want an environmental bag, but yet when they would touch a bag and it made a loud noise, it would actually signal to other people around that they were snacking. And there's sometimes a little bit of guilt in snacking, particularly when you're trying to hide it from others. So classic, we do what people tell us to do. We don't think of the ramifications, the subconscious of saying, you know what, I'd much rather snack without anybody knowing versus letting sure, make sure everybody knows that I'm composting a bag. Um, and it was one of those classic moments of thinking if only we would have done implicit research to understand what other things are driving these, uh, these Sunships lovers. And maybe we would have, uh, you know, didn't, we wouldn't have had to cost our, our brand major, major dollars in impact. We actually haven't had to pull back on the film and, and not even launch, um, the full, the, the, the full thing. We basically had to come, come away from all our retailers telling them we're going to pull our bags out. That's how, that's how bad we underestimated the power of, of system one and the embarrassment that some people felt by eating sun chips at their desk at night. Right. So when we're always urging companies and marketers to listen to their customers, we're really saying, listen for insights. They may yeah. not, they really are uh, unable to tell you what it is they, they really want. But there's one thing from page 61 I really want listeners to understand because there's, there's a lot of very sharp marketers that I've, I've met who listen to this and I want them to know this. You say, as consumers, we don't want to be influenced by an irrational state of mind, but we are. And as time goes on, more and more companies are going to try to tap into that system one. If in five years, you're still appealing to your consumer's system two brain, explaining the benefits of your products, then you'll be left in the dust by companies that tap into people's non-conscious minds. So hopefully everybody's listening now. So since system one is more uh, emotion-driven, and that's really where we want to focus our our marketing efforts. And if you read the book, you'll learn you can actually do this. And, you know, I've been uh, in business... I, I, years ago, I worked in uh, advertising on Madison Avenue in New York. And I can just remember thinking, where the hell was this book? This would have been so helpful for all the advertising uh, that I was involved in all those years ago. But I want to talk about the four key factors that marketers can tap into. And it forms, I don't know, the backbone of the of the book. So it's basically goals, motivations, regulatory approach, which is a kind of a funny term, but we'll explain that, <laughs> and uh, cognitive heuristics, which we'll also explain. So let's talk about goals. And I found this really fascinating. And also from a sales standpoint, you write that our actions are always in response mm-hmm to a goal, whether we know it or not. Explain what you mean there. So basically, as it relates to human behavior, every action you take is always going towards a goal of yours. So imagine if you are going to work and you get to your normal stop sign, right? Whether you know it or not, you can make a left-hand turn that gets you to your to your work, and that is a decision, whether you know it or not. Or I could make a right-hand ter- uh, turn and go to a park or whatever. Even though we don't think of those as being a goal, you actually do. You have a choice whether you know it or not, but the vast majority of people work off of habit, etc., 
or they're consciously aware of goals. Not often, but we are consciously aware of, of our goals. Like say when you're at a menu or when you're at a deli and you're going to order off of a menu, you may look at that menu and say, well, my goal is to lose a little bit of weight. Therefore, you're going to look at that menu differently than you would if you were looking at that menu. You just got reamed by your boss and you're looking for some comfort food. You're going to look at that menu and, and, and kind of seize different options on that menu that'll help kind of bring your, your, your confidence back. So everything you do, everything you do outside of, I would say like a biological reaction where you touch something hot, there is a goal that is, think of it as a target that your behavior needs or your mind needs to choose whether I'm going to go left at the stop sign or right at the stop sign. So it's basic stuff that we've been actually doing for a long time, but it's actually goal theory. And so it's important to understand functional goals as well as higher order goals, because that's where the emotion comes when you're first going into thinking of creative and your creative strategy, you have to help people reach their goals. So talk a bit more about what a higher order goal is. For me, that's the path to nirvana. That's right. So imagine that we have functional goals and then higher order goals. Functional goals are those things that we have been messaging to forever. I'm going to help you lose weight. I'm going to help you have brighter teeth. I'm going to help you save money. Those things that people articulate to you very easily when you say, why are you taking this? Why, why is this product important to you? Or what do you want out of this product, right? The higher order goal is if you were to ladder up all those functional goals, brighter teeth, lose weight, whatever it is for your category, and ask the consumer, why is that important? Because we go after those goals that are most resonant and most important to us. And it's the ones that with emotions. So say, for instance, if you're trying to lose weight, it's a classic thing we see all the time in our research. And we'll ask people, okay, how are you trying to lose weight? Well, I'm trying to eat healthy. I'm trying to exercise more. Those are all just functional goals. Mm -hmm. I'm trying to exercise more. Ask then, well, why is that important to you? And that's where some emotion comes in where you say, you may find that, you know what? I want to lose weight because I want to be able to walk my daughter down the wedding aisle and I know that she's going to be married in the next two years or a year or whatever. Mm -hmm. That is what's called a higher order goal. That's truly where the emotion is. That's the reason why they're seeking all these functional benefits out of your product. So if you can message to that, and I know it's kind of funny to think to yourself, well, how am I going to message to a father who wants to be able to walk his daughter down the aisle and I'm trying to sell, I don't know, a healthy chip? But you would be surprised just by understanding that his real goal is to be around and not embarrass his daughter. You just have a very different way of communicating to somebody. And it's going to break through all that clutter of all the other people that are out there saying, I can give you brighter teeth. I can have you lose weight. I can help you save money because everybody speaks to that. Very few people are speaking to that higher order goal. But it's the emotion. It's the power that drives people to go after their uh, the kind of their, their goals. Yes. And just to make sure folks understand, could you tell the other story about where you were dealing with a client in the home organization category where they were – they sell, I guess uh, – bins and things where you can store clothing, right? And uh, so you were talking to this woman, and of course, you, you didn't have her in a focus group room. You actually went to, you guys went to their home to, to talk to these people, which is real important. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And they, she started to give you some functional goals, like she wanted to straighten up, but it wasn't yep. much longer before you pretty quickly got to what the higher order goal was, and it almost got me kind of teared up. Well, yeah, it, 
it was one of the the most powerful pieces of research we did, and we we almost stumbled upon it. So it's the classic. We're here to talk to you about home storage. What are you looking for? And you get the things like, well, it has to be this size. Uh, it has to be able to fit under my bed. Functional goal. It needs to be able to seal and keep moisture and air out. Fine. All these different functional goals that they were looking for, that she was looking for. But then we started asking the very important why, right? And it's something we've been doing in research for a long time. But I think we sometimes forget to ask, well, why is that important? And we started getting into this area of, well, well, it's important to be able to have something, let's say, for instance, go under my bed. Because when I have guests coming over, well, then I don't want them to think of me as being untidy. Well, why is that important? So we asked that why question a few times. Mm -hmm. And over the course of a conversation, we're actually with this respondent inside of her closet. We're talking about closet storage. And she was saying all those functional things. But there's this moment where she stops almost mid-sentence. And she starts tearing up and she starts realizing, she's like, you know, what kind of a person am I? Look at, look at my house. Or she's like, look at my closet. She's if I can't manage this, how am I supposed to manage my family, my kids? How do I help them do all the things that they're they're supposed to do? And she starts breaking down and because she was in context of talking about storage and all of a sudden that's her reflecting her messy closets are reflecting on her self identity. And from there, we, we got to a place where, wow, the importance of storage has nothing to do, has nothing to do with the product. It has to be plastic, has to look like this, has to be this shape. No, 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 no. I remember going back to the brand team you know, actually that night and saying, guys, if you ever wonder why you do what you do, why, why, you're, why you're building this brand and why you're innovating, it is not to help people organize their closets. It is helped to make it's helping her not feel shame because she's in the closet feeling shame. And it was all because we were trying to find out and ask the question of why are these functional goals important to her? And it came down to self-identity. Mm. And it was just a series of questions. So I think if folks are out there and they're manufacturing widgets or something, you can still, through talking to these folks, start to get at what really is important to them and how your product or service may play a role in helping them to feel like they're getting towards that goal. That's right. And tactically, I'll tell you some of the questions that we ask. Like what I try to do in the book is make it very practical. So I didn't hold back. I like, if you want to know the questions I use Mm -hmm. and the questions I used in that closet, here they are. I mean, like literally, what do they ask for? Like just trying to figure out what are they asking for? That's very functional, but you got to get there. But after that, how are they incentivized? Like, how is that mom in that closet? How is she rewarded by her family, by her household? That that's just an incentive structure, right? What did what was important the last time they bought something? If they can reflect, and sometimes you gotta be careful with memory, but if they can reflect on what was important the last time they bought your product or they they used your service, very easy thing to understand higher order goals. What helped them make a decision? How or who else is involved with that decision? And how what are their needs? And then that lastly, how does this solution fit with their goals and the functional benefits that they're seeking. So those are literally the types of questions. Those are six that we always ask. And then there's a couple other things that you'll learn in the book to do, but it's actually not that difficult. You just got to be prepared to think about people's goals and then laddering those up to those higher order ones that, that are most important to them in directing their behavior. Oh, yes. Well, there's all kinds of theft that's going on here because we're stealing <laughs> quite a bit from your book and with full attribution, of course. Seriously, yeah. when we're going off and dealing with new clients and we're doing um, buyer persona interviews based mm-hmm. on the process in Adele Ravel's book, Buyer Personas, there's like five insights that, were, that are really, really helpful. 
this is this your book is now going to become part of our okay. uh, our go to books to try to get even further there, and it really gives your company or your clients an almost unfair advantage. Well, I hope also because we get asked like, are these are these mind states, these moments of temporary emotional arousal that uh, that are so important to understand and message to? They say, well, is this another segmentation? It's not. Is it a personality test? It's not. So you can actually overlay somebody's mind state on top of your attitudinal segmentation, on top of any kind of personality test. I'm not a huge fan of personality tests, but I do know that we have personality traits that influence us. But these can actually overlay. So you're thinking about it in the exact right way you should be, Douglas. These should be able to overlay on top. So now you can think about any segmentation you're running. You may hear some demographics. You may have some attitudes. You it sounds like you are using a personality profile as well. Also, now you can overlay this on top of now you have a behavioral kind of psychology overlay. And so just think of it as one more layer of behavioral psychology richness to kind of bring and triangulate all these different viewpoints together. And ultimately, those triangulations, personality tests, attitudes, belief systems, things like that, and covering those insights and applying mind state marketing to that actually amplifies the power of all that insight that you're just sitting, you know, you're sitting on in a segmentation study inside of uh, inside of your hallway. Like it amplifies the power of that segmentation. Yes, and I think also in the book you referred to some of this as sort of a guardrail, where mm-hmm. you go do your thing, but then you uh, lay this over to see if you're sort of aiming in the right direction. But also this approach can be enormously helpful because I've experienced and I see so much wasted communication and primarily something that we've already talked about, but just this bludgeoning the consumer with functional information. (laughs) So, but let me, let me move on. Motivations is the next one, which was uh, very interesting, but let me ask what may seem like a really stupid question. What exactly is motivation? Think of it this way. A motivation is the engine that drives you to go after your goal, your higher order goal, particularly when you have a barrier. It's the thing that keeps you moving. So a motivation is that psychological drive. That's why I reference it kind of like as an engine, because without a motivation, you can have a goal all day long. You can have a functional and higher order goal. But if you're not motivated by one of the nine core human motivations, it just becomes another goal that you may uh, kind of just bypass and not go after. So you mentioned the nine human motivations. I don't know that we have time for all of them, but could you touch on some of them? Because I think almost everyone you mention, people will know what you're talking about. So basically, there are nine motivations or engines that drive you across many different categories. You're not one or the other. It just depends on your frame of mind at the moment, as well as how you think about the category. So for instance, security, and this is the desire to feel secure, safe, and protected from threat. That's very Maslow, right? That mm-hmm. if you meet security console, uh, concerns, like protection of a baby, protection of family, that will drive you in the baby care section or maybe in financial services. Another one is autonomy. It's very Desi and Ryan, right? Where um, a lot of HR groups are, are, are now realizing that when you provide people autonomy, which is kind of think of it as freedom, it's being unique, independent, and having self-determination, that that drives people. Or another one is that classic type A Olympic athlete achievement motivation, the desire to feel successful, victorious, and proud by overcoming an obstacle. So there are nine of these motivations, and and they actually drive you in particular categories and, and certainly your personality. You may be a type A person, which you tend to be driven more by achievement, but on any given day, and in particular mind state, you could be heavily influenced by a totally different motivation. 
Mm-hmm. And it's fun to read through these again because you're able to think about different customers you have or or even yeah. in my own situation I'm thinking like oh well, I'm I'm probably more this way for as it regard as it relates to this particular thing that I do or or whatever so it's it's very interesting and I think that we've always been more successful for clients when we've been able to tie in more of their communication with these nine motivations yep. so one thing that's helpful is where you say as a marketer Ask yourself which motivations best describe how my customers want to feel in the moment of buying or using my brand. Think about how they want to feel. And it's going to be one of these nine, and it might even be, it could be maybe yeah. two or three, right? Two or three. That's absolutely right. You generally have a a primary motivation, but you also feel other motivations as well. And I, I think I state in the book, once you, if, if you haven't narrowed it down to three, I'm getting nervous, but if it's only one, oftentimes there's a secondary motivation. So if you want to be an achiever, then you're probably driven by the achievement motivation. If you want to uh, feel like you're a part of a social network or a tribe, well, then you're probably being uh, at least influenced by the belonging motivation. Mm-hmm. Now, just for fun, I'm going to read off what they are. Achievement, autonomy, belonging, competence, empowerment, engagement, esteem, nurturance, and security. So now, that's great. You got to know those nine. I would think a lot of companies would have a probably pretty good sense of what they think uh, their customers, what what they are. If they just look through those nine and say, okay, this is really what I think uh, they are. I bet you might be pretty close to it. But talk about promotion focus versus (laughs) prevention focus. And this was one of the two things that I, I had to go back a page or two to make sure I completely understand because with the word promotion focus, I was confusing it with the other use of the word. I wish there's a better word for it. I know. So here's the idea, guys. So if you understand people's goals or what they want, and now you understand the motivation, why they want it, what's that engine, the next thing, think of it as, again, like a kind of a car analogy. Well, what approach or what regulatory focus does somebody have when they're going after their goal, whatever that goal is? What's great is Tori Higgins over in Columbia has done work in this space forever, and it comes down to two things. We approach our goals in one of two ways. The first one is called promotion. And what that is, is you seek to maximize your chance of success or you're going to seek gains. So when you're in a promotion frame of mind, you in that moment are seeking to maximize your chances of successfully reaching your goals. So you're going to look for brands, you're going to look for messages, you're going to look for visuals that are conveying to you that yes, if you take this path, you are going to be much more likely to reach your goals. You could have the exact same goal. The You're exact trying to improve motivation. your chances, maximize improve your, your chances. chances. Yeah, that's right. You could have the exact same goal, the exact same motivation. Other people will take what's called a prevention approach. Those people are going to seek to avoid mistakes and minimize risk as it relates to going after their goals. So they're going to look for strategies. They're going to look for brands. They're going to look for communications that are telling them that if they take this path, they are less likely to not reach their goals. I know it sounds really small, but brother, it is a big deal as it relates to how you frame up your brand. So give me the example of the, of the healthy chips. 
say we understood from the healthy chips research that we did, great, we got to lower these bad things, or people are looking to lose weight, et cetera. They're driven higher order goals. I want to walk my daughter down the aisle at her wedding. And let's just say we found out that nurturance is one of the core motivations that drive this gentleman to try to lose weight and, and snack healthier. Great. If that person is in a promotion regulatory state and they're trying to maximize their chances of losing weight, they may be looking for things like, I want to eat healthier. I want to have the right nutrients, the right balance of carbohydrates, things like that. Somebody who's in that prevention, the other regulatory state, they're going to look to see those chips. I want to eliminate junk food. I want to eliminate trans fats. I want to lower my calorie count. Same chip, right? Same chip, Douglas. But it's how you frame up those benefits. It's going to feel more natural. So in the book, when you start talking about actual activation strategies, promotion versus prevention, you get into the space now where you're starting about thinking about copy and actual visuals that will just subconsciously feel more natural. And remember, 35,000 decisions you make every day, the number one decision you decide is not to decide, right? I'm going to say that again. The number one decision you make every day is to not decide. You do it all the time. So my job is to create messages and, and visuals in our, in our marketing that feel salient, that kind of keep you moving down the path. And that's a good way of doing it is understanding whether your consumer is trying to maximize gains or minimize loss. And if you can figure that out, you now have a very different suite of tools, copy and visuals that you can start integrating into your marketing to kind of drive that non-conscious. Yes. And if you don't mind, one more story. Tell the listener about the Greenpeace, where you went to Greenpeace and they were like so many nonprofits. And in the book, you said they had this uh, message and like, most nonprofits, they were getting it exactly wrong. Yeah, it, it, it's it's a power of promotion versus prevention. So, classic Green Book. I'm not saying Green Book, Greenpeace, um, or any non for profit, like you said. What you want to do, or what traditionally has happened, is that the marketers at Greenpeace and at you know American Heart Association, they talk about the risk. If we don't take action, we risk hurting our environment. So, in this case globally, what they've been doing and what they were doing at the time was if we don't change our behaviors, if you don't send us money, if you don't kind of sign up for this petition, we are going to lose the planet. We are going to hurt our future generations. It's the classic thing. You show the polar bear on a melted ice cap or whatever, and it's, it tries to really convey and make you feel sorry. So, they asked us, why don't you come in and talk to us? We're, we're losing donations. And is there a different way of communicating that we can get like uh, people to be more actively involved in giving us more donations? So a very simple A-B test we did. We took over a Facebook uh, uh, account for them, and we started doing A-B testing. And what we did was we wanted to figure out what if, rather than, we, than stating, if you don't take action, you are going to risk our planet. What if we said the opposite? What if we said... By you taking action, you're making our planet today better. I know it sounds like a small detail, but here's what we started doing. Rather than showing the polar bear that's sitting on the, on the ice cube and he's running out of land, what if we start showing people who, because they were using, like in Germany, using more solar power, that they increased wages and that they increased the number of people who were able to work. So they increased the, 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 uh, the wages as well as jobs. So just by looking at the maximizing the 
chances or maximizing the benefits of donating, it made a very, very, very different uh, feel and look of their Facebook, but also generated much more engagement, particularly what they were trying to do was trying to drive boomers. And what we found out was that boomers are kind of thinking in the here and now. They don't want to see that their their benefits and the, the money that they're giving to Greenpeace is going to benefit their great-grandkids. It sounds like we want to do that in our, our grandkids, and I'm not suggesting it's not. But if you're going to donate your hard-earned pension and you're going to donate some of those dollars to a non-for-profit, they want to see the benefits now. They don't want to think about the avoidance of consequences in the in the latter. So again, very similar goal, save the planet, very different way of communicating to boomers in particular, which made a big difference in engagement and you know sign signups for uh, different petitions for Greenpeace. Right. And so the other approach might not have been bad for certain groups, but mm-hmm. the groups that were a little older – probably a little better educated and and had a lot more money, that was the approach that worked better. And that context matters. That's right. Yeah. And it was like changing up your golf grip and suddenly you were winning, (laughs) winning all the golf games. It seems like a a little thing, but it uh, it makes an enormous difference. So we've had uh, goals and then motivations and then regulatory approach, which is the promotion focus versus prevention focus. And the last one is cognitive heuristics. So Explain what they are and how they drive decision-making, even though a lot of people won't admit that they do. I know. So all that big, fancy word, cognitive heuristics, means is it's a shortcut. So remember, you make 35,000 decisions. What we tend to do at the non-conscious level is find a shortcut. So rather than even doing, you know, even thinking about my goals and what motivates me, right, is we tend to find shortcuts to get through a decision quicker and faster. That's what behavioral economics as a science is all about. It's uncovering these heuristics. So a heuristic is think of it as a rule of thumb. Think of it as a, a small mental model or a mental road to get you from point A to point B. So one of them is classic scarcity effect. So we tend to, especially in the United States, we tend to value things that we believe are scarce in nature. So rather than doing, you know, kind of cost benefit analyses on should I, you know, should I buy this brand or should I not buy this brand? Oftentimes, if you understood that your shopper was driven by scarcity for whatever reason, you can take a shortcut to say limited time only. And that right there signals at the non-conscious level to this person in that moment, well, if it's scarce, there's more value. I better go grab that. So we use these cognitive heuristics all the time in all interactions, whether we're going to buy things or we're going to, we're going to talk to our friends on how making decisions faster. So there's a number of these cognitive heuristics. I think we list out 22 that we see again and again. Some people think there's over 100. The point is this, is that there are enough of them where they're meaningful and there's not so many that you can't wrap your hands around it. And if you can identify one or two or maybe three different cognitive heuristics that your shopper, or your consumer, your website uh, you know, visitor – uses as it relates to this experience, I can just drop those in and you make a decision faster. And I'm telling you, the faster a decision made is made and the more salient or the more natural it is, that tends to be the path of least resistance. And we tend to behave and go down the path of least resistance. So heuristics are kind of small little triggers that we talk about in the book just to kind of get to this particular moment of high emotional arousal. And trigger will actually trigger that higher emotional arousal where people are more susceptible to that influence that we're talking about. Yes, and it brought to mind Robert Cialdini's book, Influence the Psychology of Persuasion, which, if I'm not mistaken, that is the best-selling business book on Amazon. 
He's a um, pioneer. He's yes. a pioneer. In fact, my I, I start with his. So I have the exact same heuristics that he has, and I've built from there. But the guy was talking about this 20 years ago before anybody no actually i'm gonna close he wrote it he wrote the book ago. in 84 in 84 that's right so he was he saw these things well before anybody else and so i still go to that book all the time and even his latest book as well yes and because uh, you've even got amongst all these on there his are laid in here you've got reciprocity and scarcity i mean not his but those are the he has six <laughs> yeah which is a good start and then these others uh can probably help you uh, dial it in a little more closely so now that we've covered the four elements of the mind state behavioral model goals motivations approach and cognitive heuristics can you talk in the remaining time about how to identify basically what's most important of all <laughs> which is your customers <laughs> mind state. That's right. So I always tell my clients, like, who cares if you know somebody's goals or their motivations? Those are just great insights, right? Like, so what are you going to do with that? What if you get these great insights? Well, here's why they're important. Because if you can identify, in particular, somebody's motivation and their regulatory approach, those, those two in the middle, you can identify what's called a mind state. And a mind state are these moments of high emotional arousal, oftentimes non-conscious, that you are under a state of mind where you're much more susceptible to emotional decision-making. And remember, 95% of our decisions are emotional, so why wouldn't we use an understanding somebody's mind state to help craft our messaging to either activate on that mind state or at least integrate within a mind state? So just imagine this. You have nine core human motivations that drive vast majority of human behaviors, and people go after their goals in one of two ways, promotion or prevention, Nine motivations times either promotion or prevention turns into nine, or I'm sorry, 18 mind states. Well, who cares? Okay, great. So identification of a mind state is is important, but why is it important to you know people on this podcast right now? It's because if I can identify somebody's mind state, I now understand the psychological primes, frames, and triggers that I can incorporate into my messaging. I can incorporate into my user experience, into my service design to activate that kind of excited, emotional peak state. So mind state marketing is all built around identifying which of these 18. And then there's actually a behavioral activation brief that you can go and download for free that'll tell you simple, small little things you can do to actually integrate some of these psychological primes and you know benefit frames into your current messaging. And so when you do that, you should have much more effective messaging because it'll feel natural because it's kind of talking to somebody's heart. They're not conscious. But also, if you have a good product design and you have a really good website or whatever, it's going to talk to that system too, that conscious mind as well. So you get to pull in emotion as well as rational thinking all together in one piece of a creative. And ultimately, I think you win with that with that recipe. Amen. And there are several parts in the book where you talk about the enormous implications for the content you're producing. And it, for me, it brought to mind like a couple things. One is, okay, right off the bat, you're going to know, you're going to be able to figure out, is it in this nine or that nine? Okay, then you got it down to nine. Okay, but also, once you've done the hard work and, and figured that part out, you're going to know what not to waste so much time and effort on because it's just going to ring hollow. So, yep. No, very much so. I think that the one thing I try to tell, I, just, I was just on, on stage in Austin uh, last week talking about this, start with a model of some kind right? Because now if you have a model that you're basing, you know, your creative strategy, rather than doing A-B testing, should I t put a green box here or a red box there? 
have that decision based upon a mind state or a model can start eliminating the vast majority of bad waste that you're out there because you know it's not psychologically optimized. So I think of it as a way of not only maximizing better marketing, but it's eliminating those mistakes because you have biases yourself, right, Douglas? Like we all have yeah. these things that we believe work, but what if I was able to eliminate those things that you do just naturally as a creative director, as a copywriter, you use this word because it's kind of in your natural lexicon, eliminate that from consideration and you don't have to worry about that kind of influencing kind of negative aspects of your messaging. Well, and here's another thought that came to mind. That is, if you get down this road and your management and let's say your sales team, everyone starts to agree like, yep, yeah, this, is, this is really it. You're actually going to hear conversations where people start talking about that yeah. particular mind state. And that's just going to help. It's not just going to help your marketing, okay? It's going to help your product development. It's going to help uh, the delivery of your service, the kind of experience that you're giving your customers. Yep, the management of your employees. You could. It, it's all behavioral psychology, right? So you could actually take the same idea, and it can help you manage internal culture. Like, in fact, I know companies are doing it right now. So, no, you're you're exactly right. It's a, it's a way of managing expectations internally, creative externally, um, anything that has to be used to influence, whether it's a conversation internally or, you know, like I said, creative or service design externally, it's all based upon people's behavior. So why wouldn't you use these types of sciences to help uh, optimize them? Mm. So, Will, if readers took only one thing away from the book, what would you hope it would be? I I think is science based design is our future. Like emotional marketing, I know everybody talks about brand stories and things like that, and we have to be more emotional. Realize there's science behind it, and it doesn't have to get technical. You can use very simple things that I talk about in the book that can actually, you don't have to become like we wrote in there, you don't have to be a PhD in psychology to activate and use these these principles. So science-based design is our future, and it doesn't have to be complex. Well, what books have inspired your working career? The number one book that changed my life, and I hear it all the time, is uh, Predictably Irrational from Dan Ariely. I mean, when I read that book, and I came from a very classical economics uh, background, it changed my life. So thinking about kind of these non-conscious factors, you know, Predictably Irrational changed everything for me. And also, I love this book in terms of tactics. Uh, it's It's a book called Drunk Tank Pink by Adam Alter. And what it basically does is talks about our environments and context and how much it influences us. And those two books just changed the way I thought about research, but then also how to think about marketing and how we have this whole new toolkit called behavioral design to, you know, use in messaging. That's terrific. If you go to marketingdemindstates.com, you'll get directed to uh, Will's site. And he's got a few uh, resources there that you can download, all kinds of maps and helpful things. And there's one document, (laughs) and it's got, here's the list of books I would recommend reading in order if you want to learn more about behavioral science, behavioral economics, and behavioral design. You go 1 through 12, and then you even go on to say, and if you're into the application of behavioral science into marketing and design, then you've got five more books, but it's in order. So it's like, yeah. that's terrific for listeners that are interested in this. Uh, just uh, read what he's what he's got there. So are there any recent or upcoming books that you recommend or looking forward to reading? Yeah. So there's, there's two. One of them is actually a bit older, but I just happened to buy it recently. And I love it. It's called The Secret Life of Pronouns. And I know it sounds like really boring, but it's not. So James, I think it's his back or his, his, his last name is, uh, Penichex, I think, but 
So what he does is he looks at how people talk, particularly about themselves, can help you understand how they psychologically relate to the world. So it's called The Secret Life of Pronouns. It's a bit old, but I love it because it talks about when you use I versus we and what that says about you. And it has some pretty out out there things, but it's so much fun. And there's a new book that just came out that I'd recommend you guys listening to. It's called So um, An Economist Walks Into a Brothel, and it's from Alison Schrager. And um, what it does is it helps you understand risk um, and how an economist looks at risk and how to inf- how risk influences our daily actions. But it's done in a really creative way. So I'm really loving her book right now. Oh, those are two great ones I had not heard of, both very creative titles. And the second book brings <laughs> to mind a famous advertising biography called Don't Tell My Mother I Work in Advertising. She Thinks I Play Piano in a Whorehouse. Uh, <laughs> now you've given me a book. I got to go read. Thank you. <laughs> I think it was by a, a Frenchman. It was mentioned in David Ogilvy's book, uh, Ogilvy on Advertising, from yeah. from many years ago. So, how best can listeners learn more about you and your book? So you can go to marketingtomindstates.com and that will tell you more about these resources. Again, I'm trying to put everything into the hands of, of anybody out there who wants to use it. So if you're a copywriter, please download it. If, you wanna, if you're into creative director, even if you're just a real estate agent who's trying to do a little bit better marketing, there's tons of content at marketingtomindstates.com. Um, you can also reach me on LinkedIn, of course. That's one of my bigger platforms where I like to publish articles. I'm, in fact, right now I'm writing an article on thinking about mindsets around Game of Thrones. If you're a Game of Thrones uh, fan, I'm talking about the mindsets actually right now of Cersei Lannister. I'm writing it right now. I've already done Jon Snow, and I'm going to be doing uh, Daenerys Targaryen. So LinkedIn is a place where you can find my articles and things like that, and certainly on Facebook groups and on Instagram as well. Game of Thrones? Never heard of it. <laughs> Who has? I know something <laughs> it's out there. I don't know. A lot of people talk about something around the Game of Thrones on Sunday nights. Yeah, so I had to what's there, uh, right? what's going on there? Somehow, <laughs> I think that's going to be uh, probably a pretty popular uh, article. So we'll include links to your uh, site as well as your business site, uh, your LinkedIn profile, your Twitter handle. You actually have two: one for you, one for the book, right. and all the books that uh, you've mentioned on this episode. Show notes for you. What that for that list of seventeen? You folks are going to need to go to marketingmindstates.com. And we're going to put all that in your episode's show notes at marketingbookpodcast.com so that listeners can reach out to you and connect with you. And I hope they'll thank you for being a guest. I would really appreciate it. And for you, dear listener, if you're listening on your smartphone, you subscribe to the Marketing Book Podcast on your favorite podcast app. All these links can be found by going to this episode and clicking on the show notes link. Also, I'd like to thank so many of you, hundreds, for leaving iTunes reviews. When you do a review, According to the smart people, more people are able to then discover the show. And so if you've left a review, please connect with me on LinkedIn and send me a screenshot of the review so I can read it and appreciate it. And send your mailing address wherever you are in the world, and I will send you a thank you note, a marketing book podcast bookmark, and a marketing book podcast laptop sticker. And yes, Will, you're going to be getting all those too. The name of the book is Marketing to Mind States, The Practical Guide to Applying Behavior Design to Research and Marketing. The author is Will Leach. Will, thank you very much for joining us on the Marketing Book Podcast. Hey, thanks for having me, Douglas. I really appreciate it. And that closes the book on episode 228 of the Marketing Book Podcast. For more, check out this episode's show notes at marketingbookpodcast.com. And if I can recommend a specific marketing or sales book or other helpful resource for whatever situation you find yourself in, feel free to connect with me on LinkedIn where we can chat and I'll try to point you in the right direction. My name again is Douglas Burdett. 
Special thanks to our sponsor, Blinkist. To support the Marketing Book Podcast and start your free Blinkist trial or get 20% off your yearly plan, visit Blinkist.com slash Marketing Book Podcast or just click on the link at MarketingBookPodcast.com. And please join us next time as we welcome David Averin to the Marketing Book Podcast to talk about his new book, Why Customers Leave and How to Win Them Back. Thanks again for listening to the Marketing Book Podcast. This episode was produced by Sean Armstrong. Sean Armstrong.